You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Welcome back to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of one Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Good day to you both. What up, Cliff? Hello. What's going on? Just uh, chilling out in my little English flat. It's a beautiful sunshiny day here. It's about like 40 degrees though so yeah today was quite politically significant it's the queen's speech day oh. where the, the the current government deliver their objectives and the queen who wasn't present but prince philip was in, in her stead to address the parliament what the government plans on doing this year how far back does that tradition go oh, i don't know probably ages I, i'm not too well versed in parliamentary politics very cool. Well, anyway, I guess we should probably get into it. We've been on a voyage this past month, plus we've entered into Niebuhr's world through the war and pacifism door, the place where many are kind of first exposed to Niebuhr. But a few weeks back, we started from the beginning of Niebuhr, the beginning of Niebuhr's life. We went uh, through Dr. Uh, Gary Dorian's book that gave kind of this overview of Niebuhr's beginning, and uh, we, we made it kind of partway through his life then. And then we had the pleasure of interviewing Dorian. If you haven't had a chance, go back and listen to that. It was a fantastic discussion. He was very generous. Um, we always love it on the podcast when people will freely come on here. And I think he was uh, there on uh, there. It was during their reading week at Union which is basically a week in preparation for their exam week. So he didn't have class. He happened to not have class and he was able to, to spend that time with us instead, which was incredible. Um, but now we start on what is honestly, it's quickly becoming my fi- favorite biographical reflection on Niebuhr. Uh, and I've, I've read, I was just telling Zach about this last night when we were texting that I've read a whole lot of a ridiculous amount of biographies on Niebuhr. I mean, Langdon Gilkey has a great uh, theological biography on him. Uh, uh, of course, uh, Fox uh, Fox's biography is probably the most well-known. It's a huge, thick volume. But this, by Jeremy Sabella, this book, it, it's so good. And yeah, it's called uh, An American Conscience. And it's it was written to be a part of kind of the DVD that came out on um, Niebuhr's Life or the DVD, the, the movie that came out on, on Niebuhr's Life, uh, the PBS had, and I think maybe BB, uh, BBC picked up as well. Uh, you can find that, that uh, documentary online, and I think, you, I think you have to buy it now. But it's, it's a good documentary, but I think that it's an even better book. If, if anything, I think, the, I think that that documentary was just a good excuse for Sabella to write this because it's seriously so good. Um, and you guys just quickly, what's your first impression of this, of this work so far? How's, how's it reading for you? Well, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a sucker. This book, this book is probably one of my favorites, probably on my top 10 books of all time. Um, 
just because of the way it impacted my life and so on and so forth. I know it doesn't, you know, it's not Plato or Aristotle or one of those, but just in the way that impacted my life and impacted the way that I engage with other people. Um, I really enough, I give it out for Christmas. I, I make it a point to give one, at least one copy out at Christmas to somebody. Um, so you, you know, you always, you always might end up being that lucky person that gets, you know, this really fantastic biography for Christmas. Um, my father-in-law was two years ago. Um, one of the church elders this year, but the reason I, uh, the reason I, I, I could go on and on. What the reason I really like it is it makes Niebuhr really accessible and really engaging. And, and, you know, I guess you could also say one of the, one of the killer attributes of it is it has a great audio version. The audio version is like super good. So it's like really like easy to listen to really engaging. He chose like a really good narrator for like a historical retelling. Um, and there really that, aren't that many Niebuhr audiobooks uh, by no. Niebuhr or on Niebuhr. Yeah. So this this is a good opportunity to to download this and listen to it. I drive like a half hour uh, to the church every day, and I, I yeah, I'm always on the lookout for something I can listen to in the car. Um, and there have been times in my life where I've always been wanting to find something like that. So. Uh, yeah, this this is one that um, it's not hard to find. I mean, it's very easy to, to download this. And I think it's pretty cheap right now. I think I think for the Kindle version, it's like two bucks or something right now. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, and, and I would also say, like, it's, it's a great invitation. Like, I, I, I was trying to put my thoughts together. I think it's a great invitation to Niebuhr's writing. Like, if you want to, like, yeah. his, some of his writing might seem inaccessible when you first engage with it. Like, I remember the first time I picked up Moral Man and Immoral Society. And I was like, yeah, I'm never gonna be able to understand this. But then I, I understood the context of it through Sibella, through this book, Amer An American Conscience. And I was like, oh, like, so it's one of those books that you want to get because it's going to be, it's going to show you, hey, here's, here's a survey of his works really condensed down and here's how they're applicable to their time. And that is really helpful, really needed with Niebuhr's work. Yeah, so. that, that was something that I found, I think, with Fox, Fox's biography is so huge uh, that he can become very atomistic and doesn't doesn't piece together necessarily the grand narrative or it's hard to, I guess, get that unless you read it all in one sitting um, or you get on the other end of the spectrum, this very theologically heavy book like Langdon Gilkey's. But Sabella just really finds this happy medium where you get so much of the background of Niebuhr's world, what he's seeing at this time in Detroit or in Missouri, wherever he happens to be. Uh, I mean, he even, you know, talks about what it's like to be a farmer in this time and things like that. I, I just I, I think that stuff is is fascinating. But then he can he can really piece together uh, in a very concise way his books um, individually. Mm -hmm. the, the the section that he does on more man, more society near the end of uh, ch uh, chapter two. I thought was, gosh, it, it's so good to see it laid out this way, so simply and concisely, and in conjunction with what he had just talked about in his life and Niebuhr's life kind of leading up to this moment is uh, beautifully done. So to Jeremy, he's, he is a friend of the show, and we're going to have him on when we conclude this book. But um, but Jeremy, if you're listening, this is excellent, excellent work. Aaron, what what were your thoughts? Um, I, Well, I think, you know, what you guys said was quite poignant and i agree with it completely um if i had to add something like um going off what you said the little things like what it was like to be a farmer back then um the, the smaller and finer details are are great 
Um, for instance, reading Sabella's entry on Detroit and how Henry Ford's um, automobile revolution in this area really impacted his church, um, the Reinhold Niebuhr's church um, in the surrounding area, how it brought all these immigrants in to work, which, you know, boost the number of his church, but also boost the number of KKK support in the yeah. area, which then got Niebuhr back into, well, into race pol politics as well. It's fantastic. The one thing I really, really admire about the book so far is the way Sabella is able to piece all these little pieces of information together, but he's following a really strict narrative. So chapter one is all about Niebuhr engaging, uh, you know, being from a pastor at a small church in Bethel to growing at numbers over 800 families, yeah. writing a moral man in moral society. And the question you're left on is where's the hope? And he ends off with, that thing with MLK is like, yeah, where's, where's all the hope going? And then the next chapter is called Hope Amidst, amidst the Chaos. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like Sabella is able to follow this, you know, theme throughout Niebuhr's uh, life in this first section of his life. Then he's able to transfer it to this new bit. So he's really helping readers kind of get the sense of where Niebuhr's going in his writings whilst providing a lot of information about those writings. Yeah, and I and before we like really um, hit the ground running into into chapter one, I I think it's important to reflect on what Robin Levin says. Robin Levin Levin is a uh, Niebuhr scholar, and he wrote the foreword to this. And Levin says that what he kind of argues, what I the, the the gist of I think what he was getting at is we shouldn't look at the Sabella work like it's just a companion piece to the documentary but this is uh this is a well-established it should be you know uh it should be seen as a significant contribution to Niburian studies um on its own you know um apart from from the documentary um and i i yeah i think that's really important to know going into that, that this is this is something that not only is it something that's accessible that i think that we should we should give out to people um, and by the way, somebody just wrote me this uh, past week, uh, DM'd me, one of our uh, listeners, and said that uh, he's already uh, put this book on his list. I, I believe he's already bought it. Um, and, I, and I think this is a good entryway into, in, into Niebuhr's thought. Um, but also it's, you know, it's a, it's a significant, you know, contribution to his work. So let's go ahead and get into this. Sabella paints this picture of Missouri. And thinking about this time, I mentioned about the farmers earlier, like this is a time when they're still using horses to plow the ground. They're still using kerosene lamps. And Niebuhr is, I believe, 22-year-old, 23-year-old, taking over his father's pulpit after his unexpected death. And a lot of people are wondering, you know, what does this kid have to offer? You know, can this kid even preach? One of the things I was struck by, something that I really felt, and maybe uh, it, it seems like it seems like Niebuhr and I kind of had a, a similar response to the vestments that you wear from in the pulpit. So you wear the robes and stuff like that, robing up yeah, is yeah. what I call it. And at you first, you wear vestments. What's that? I'm sorry. You wear vestments. At your I, do. Yes, I do. Oh, okay, cool. And uh, yeah, I got a cool white one for communion days, and um, 
a, a really hot and bulky black robe for, you know, uh, all the other days. But I think I'm going to wear the white all throughout because it's like cotton and it breathes. But uh, but at first, I remember, you know, earlier on in my life, I thought that this like wearing the vestments makes the pastor seem much bigger than they are. And, you know, it's a, it's showy faith and that type of a thing. Um, but it's really grown on me in a significant way in that when you wear the vestments, this is just my thinking, not Niebuhr's quite yet, but it feels like it shrinks me and it, and I become a part of like, I wear the same colors as the parchments on the altar and on the pulpit and throughout the sanctuary. It makes me a part of the environment um, rather than someone who stands out. Um, but yeah, I, I, it doesn't individualize me, but it, it kind of places me within the broader context. And so it kind of shrinks the individual of me a, a little bit. And Niebuhr has something of a similar view here. Remember, he's, you know, in his early 20s, uh, taking on this parish. And he says, quote, um, well, he says at first, I felt too much like a priest in it. And I, ab and I abhor priestliness. My, that was the same as my initial thoughts. But then he says, it gives me the feeling that I'm speaking not altogether out of my own name and out of my own experience, but by the authority of the experience of my Christian, of many Christian centuries. And it, I, I feel like it has a similar effect. Like it, I can see how for a 22 year old, 23 year old wearing the vestments kind of makes you a part of that history rather than this individual who is worthy of being this person, but somebody who is an extension of the tradition itself. And yeah, I just, what, I just really appreciated that. You gotta love his. Yeah. You gotta love just that frank honesty, though. That you know what I mean. Like that. Just one of the things I love about Niebuhr is just kind of like he's reflecting on the vestments. Like every pastor, you know. I even think about like when I go to get dressed in the morning on a, like Sunday, and I'm like, should I be wearing a suit? Right. Like, isn't this like disoriented? Like, why am I wearing a suit? Like, it, but then like the vestments, I have the same apprehension. It's like, uh, you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, it's just like I just love that about Niebuhr that he's just so honest, just open, just just telling you what he's actually wrestling with. Yeah. And I remember feeling that when I started teaching uh, at university, because I was so young, I think I was uh, 25 when I taught my first class and I actually had someone in my class who I went to school with, <laughs> you know? So it was like a really weird uh, thing. And I felt like actually grew out a beard because of it to kind of distinguish me a little bit. And I started wearing a tie every day because I thought that, you know, I had to kind of be a part of this institution. And that was a way that I felt like I was a part of that institution rather than just speaking from my own experience. But yeah, I, I love the honesty of that, of that kind of pointing out kind of the vulnerability of a situation, but finding the literal cloth, you know, as being a, a source of, of giving him some confidence and uh, um, yeah, that's great stuff. What do you guys think about his relation to tradition? A lot of Protestants today might, I don't really have a high relevance, uh, re reverence for tradition, but even in Niebuhr's own like experience between his German American background, Sabella paints this picture that in his time period, pre-World War One and going into World War II, there is this 
com internal conflict than most German Americans. They don't know really. They're trying to pledge allegiance to America and not seem as if they're they're two conflicting identities. But do you think perhaps Niebuhr's reverence for that tradition that he that he sees kind of comes out of this experience of his um, inability to kind of reconcile his German American identity? That's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. That's like that's a good question because he always seems to be kind of. Um, he has like a reverence, like kind of innate. It seems like at least Sabella paints it that he has a reverence for tradition. Um, but at the same time, he always seems to be kind of like avoiding tradition and avoiding like traditional um, mm -hmm. approaches to things. You know, he's trying to kind of circumvent. I mean, one of the things that stood out to me the most when we're thinking about this is when they talk about Ursula. One of the things that Sabella says, is Ursula is his wife. Um, one of the things he liked about her is that she was, she kind of had a, not a distaste for tradition, but she kind of, uh, had his, his kind of same edge against tradition, I guess you could say. Um, there's probably a better way to say that, but yeah, it just has, it has a way of like kind of a little bit of a rebel inside of him. You know what I mean? There's a little, I, I, I definitely see that, but I mean, he does have a reverence for it as well at the same time. And so. I think to get to Aaron's point a little bit, I think that that reverence for the tradition a little bit saves him a little bit, allows him to escape into something that isn't so polarized because mm -hmm. you, you know, it, this is during World War One, where the German Americans feel that they have to express their Americanism um, to show their patriotism. They're not like the enemy of World War One, but they also feel conflicted by uh, that this is still their people that are the enemy. Um, but the tradition kind of allows Niebuhr to find this third way, this third space, you know, to to occupy that isn't. Um, that isn't just, uh, you know, uh, a friend or foe. Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that he is um, he's skeptical of everything. You know, everything he engages with, he's skeptical mm -hmm. of. You know, it's like, in, you know, in this first chapter when they're talking about um, his wrestlings with World War One and like whether or not he should s serve in the military. And then another sort of tradition comes up. And it's this tradition of like... Um, um, what are they called the in the military chaplains mm -hmm. and um he's like wrestling with this tradition of like chaplains in the military and their place in the conflict mm -hmm. but at the same time <clears throat> he's like drawn to it and he recognizes that he's drawn to that position and and wants to be he he, he feels called to like go and be a, a chaplain but at the same time he's like but i also recognize that we're like serving the god of mars <laughs> right you know what i mean and it's like, yeah, he, he says uh, his published di diary reveals profound ambivalence about combining ministry and military service. He says, quote, what makes me angry is the way I kowtow to the chaplains as I visit the various camps. Here are ministers of the gospel, just as I am, uh, just as I, they are also for the moment priests of the great God Mars, you know, the, the God of war. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think that's something that Dorian has kind of captured quite a bit, kind of this this uh, character cast between worlds type of thing. Uh, and that's important stuff. But how about what, what do you guys think about as he goes into Detroit? And by the way, he, he kind of foreshadows a little bit here, kind of linking together Ford and the social gospel a little bit. But to kind of set this scene up a little bit. So Henry Ford was not like. Rockefeller. Rockefeller was largely seen as kind of an enemy to the people. He was one of those 
great big turn of the century tycoons that abused his power, that squelched unions, that literally turned the the National Guard against organizers, um, Gatling guns and all. And then we turn to, and which, by the way, ironically, Niebuhr for him says, well, he's at least a Christian, which is weird. And I think, and Sabella points out that, you know, the public, the publication that Niebuhr said that in, well, at least he's, he's a Christian, went under, or it wasn't publication, but it was a group, but it went under. And so he never got to kind of retract his claims with them. Uh, but then he goes to Henry Ford. And Henry Ford is beloved compared to Rockefeller. Everybody loves Henry Ford because he has this huge uh, salary for working class people. Um, and he establishes the five day work week and stuff like this. But Niebuhr still has issues with Henry Ford. And what, what are those issues? Can either guys kind of articulate what his issues with Ford were? Well, I, I think it's actually this conflict between Niebuhr um and Ford that for some reason it like changed my life. Like I, it sounds really dramatic and everything, but it did like, it's a it great fundamentally... conflict that you have this great and towering theologian of the 20th century, you know, yeah. bumping up against this great and towering, uh, you know, icon of American industry. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, there's a lot that I could say here because there's, there's so much stuff that he brings out and fleshes out that I think is so powerful like one of the one of the things, and I think this is what changes from his uh, connection to R- Rockefeller, right? Yeah. And then yeah. Ford is that uh, sincerity is not good enough, right? Mm-hmm. Sincerity doesn't doesn't keep you from criticism, right? It, I, I'm saying you're doing giving it your best shot, or saying, "Hey, I'm a virtuous person." Does even if you truly believe that, right? Even though Ford truly believed he had a sincere belief, right? And Niebuhr began to believe that this guy actually had a sincere belief that he was doing a good thing. But the reality is that sincerity is not good enough, right? If, if injustice is still taking place, criticism is still warranted. And all these people are afraid. All these people are afraid to criticize him because he's sincere, you know? But that, that is such the problem with so much like of, I think, American Christianity. I hate to just, you know call it the whole swath because it's probably it's not a monolith but there's a huge portion of christianity in america that believes that sincerity is good enough right if, if we sincerely pursue good that's good enough yeah. but neighbor's saying like hey no 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 uh you you need to be actually accomplishing good right that, that needs to be a part of what you're doing and it's even more than just sincerity uh so yes yeah, so i think that neighbor in kind of lockstep with his social gospel context is saying that sincerity is not good enough, but he's saying something extra here. Not only is, is sincerity not good enough, but sincerity a- actually masks. It kind of covers up the evil that actually Ford yes. is doing. Yes. And it even contributes to Ford's own self-delusion a little bit mm-hmm. because he thinks yep. that he's trying to do what's good, but he's neglecting some of these uh, things that are just under the surface that a lot of the nation doesn't see. Um, like uh, one example that Sabella gives is uh, that Henry Ford in all sincerity is trying to clean up the streets. So what does he do? He takes those between the ages of 16 and 19 and gives them jobs in his factory. And this is, uh, you know, under the guise of, you know, I'm, I'm helping our communities by getting, like keeping these kids out of mischief, I think is, is the, is the way that he put it, but this actually 
took away job or it, it gave Ford kind of uh, the license to to fire some of these older workers uh, and put yeah, these younger okay. people in their place. And and these people just didn't have uh, the income or or anything saved up to actually deal or with. Sure, or he shortened the work week. What's that? He shortened the work week, too. Yeah. You know, so he said, hey, we're going to raise your thing, but then we're going to give you one last day of work a week. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, thing, the thing I was going to add to this, and I didn't quite get around to it, but like the thing that like really came away from with this conflict between Ford and Niebuhr and, you know, and some of the other stuff that he's doing at this time, um, you know, his work with race issues, his, his um, which we got to hit, by the way, yeah. dabble into politics and so on and so forth. The thing that really changed my life is that, you know, I, I came up in a tradition that was very focused on removing the Christian from politics, you know, unless it was like a moral issue, like, you know, we could go down the list of the moral issues, but just, you know, we got to be able to preach to the right and the left, right? That's the famous Billy Graham quote, mm -hmm. but, but this really confronted me with like, that's not good enough. You know what I mean? That is not a good enough, like that, that is, that is, it, it, it kind of shocked me out of that a little bit to say, Hey, that, like, that is not good theology. And so it's like Niebuhr's activism here, like he's going after Ford, like it's epic, but it's also just like, it's like calls me away. It really convicts me. It's just like, wake up. And, is that, wake and up. it's, it's like, arming. This is kind of what Sabella's driving at here. I think it's, he's setting up kind of Niebuhr's own personal reflection on social gospel movement, that this quest for purity, this idea that we're all super sincere about this and we're going to do this good work. Uh, it's not good enough. And it's actually keeping us from looking at the larger picture because it's it's making us feel good about ourselves that we're on this quest. But it doesn't but it, it leaves us kind of blind to some of the bad things that we're not seeing that we're actually a part of. And mm -hmm. that and it kind of lulls us into this state where, uh, OK, this narrow focus of ours, it's a, it's a just quest. Um, and it's so just that we can kind of neglect all these other things. It reminds me of that, of that Jesus quote where he says that you're straining the gnat, but you know, there's a camel in the water. Um, and, uh, you know, you are, uh, neglecting the weightier matters of the law because of this. Um, and so I, I think that this is arming him for the, the kind of standoff he's going to have with social gospel and moral man and moral society, where he's going to say that your sincerity is, is making you self-righteous to the point that, that you can't see the, the broader uh, program of justice that you can help implement here. I think as well, as we kind of touched on this already with self-deception, but whenever we kind of try to analyze politicians or our friends or neighbors and try to figure out what their motivations are for doing the things they do, you know, I don't think Sabella, well, I know for fact Sabella in this particular section hasn't said that Niebuhr condemned Ford as an evil man. Mm -hmm. It's not like Ford was sitting there conniving, trying to figure out how he could be so blatantly disrespectful to human beings. He was just being greedy. And so, so Sabella says a sincerity Niebuhr came to believe could coexist and evil even enable yes. self-deception. So even someone like Ford can be as sincere um, to lower the work week to five days 
it has much more impact on a large scale on personal finances for his workers. Or he could sincerely believe that he's doing a really good job by employing these 16 to 19 year olds whilst getting rid of these older workforce without concern for their well-being as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of, of being where his attention lies. So you can have sincerity, but also just, you know, be self-deceived by the actual effects of your actions, which is what he criticized early on with his German-American um, uh, fellow citizens, right? That they are just too focused on the individual's um, actions and not yeah. the wider scale actions that... Or- well, it- and, and I love how, and I love how uh, Sibella highlights that, you know, he highlights that idea that like, um, you know, he thinks this one guy doesn't have the courage to, to speak against issues, right? He's just not courageous enough. Well, then this guy loses a hundred parishioners because he says that women shouldn't smoke cigarettes. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, oh my gosh, like he does have the courage. He just is so fixated on um, like I personal says, morality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they have that, they have that quote that's so cutting. I don't know if it's from Niebuhr, it's probably just some sort of proverb, but he puts it, puts in there to kind of define this issue. Like they're, they're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like their, their justice or what they're seeking to do good. Like it's so abstract and, you know, personally related that it can't do anything good for society. Um, I love, I love that. Uh, He does draw that out. I love, I love the example of the, tirade against women who smoke cigarettes and lost almost a hundred of his fashionable uh, parishioners. These pastors, Sibella says, simply did not see the structural injustice as meriting the same sort of attention as personal vices. Love that. I mean, it speaks so much. And and I also love how Sibella highlights that like when Niebuhr does do this, when he does go out and say like, Hey, I need to be socially active and engage with these issues. Um, Mm -hmm. He had the inevitable uh, response of basically nobody else getting on board. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about. Like, it wasn't like it was like he started this movement and everybody was like, "Yeah, let's do it, let's get on board." It's like all these other. Pa- he was kind of dismayed that all these other pastors were like, "Whoa, <laughs> yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa!" You know, I've got a lot of. We want to focus on like cigarettes and sex before marriage or whatever else they were focusing well, on. Well, let's talk for um, a second about. I think that there is a difference in tactics here between Niebuhr the pastor and Niebuhr later the theologian because Niebuhr is very charitable here to Henry Ford. This is kind of going back to what Aaron is saying. Uh, I'll read a quote here. Um, it is this is from Niebuhr. It is difficult to determine whether Mister Ford is simply a shrewd exploiter of gullible public uh, of of a gullible public in his humanitarian pretensions or whether he suffers from self-deception. My own guess, Niebuhr says, my own guess is that he is at least as naive as he is shrewd, that he does not think profoundly on the social implications of his industrial policies, and that in some of his avowed humanitarian moves, he is actually self-deceived. What I love about this is, like Mm. later on, Niebuhr would call this stupidity, or he would call it hypocrisy. Here, it's, it almost seems like he's giving him the benefit of the doubt a little bit here. He's saying that, yeah, maybe he's shrewd, but also maybe he has very good intentions here and he's doing something wrong. Now, my question to you guys is, and this is an incredible way, I think that Niebuhr is, is trying to have his cake and eat it too a little bit, where he's trying to critique him, but also not trying to upset kind of the powers that be a little bit. 
we have to remember this is something that, that's really striking that Sabella brings out here. Niebuhr is a mega church pastor. All right. He's the pastor yeah. of hundreds of people, not only the immigrant laborers in the factories, but also the one percenters. Uh, you know, the, the people who are rich are attending Niebuhr's church here in Detroit. I mean, it's right downtown, right in the middle of everywhere. So Niebuhr kind of has to strike this tone a little bit where he but he can do that, though. He can give the benefit of the doubt and say, see, you're still, though, even though you mean well, you're still missing these things. And I'm wondering if that I mean, tactic would have been as powerful in uh, the academy as it was in the church. That's a hard one, man. You're, you're the academic here. Well, what's interesting is that when I was in the university, I felt more restrained, I think, on what I could say um, than I do oh. in my own church, which is interesting. <laughs> But it, my the the university I was at was very evangelical, so I think that that speaks to that. I, that's actually for our listeners. That's why I am under a pseudonym on uh, on Twitter. It started that way, at least, because people were having issues with my politics, uh, and um, while I was at the university, and so I became anonymous, you know, and it just kind well, of stuck. His indictment, man, of these. I mean. It doesn't, it's hard because I want to say it doesn't really matter, right? Like how, if it's in the church or if it's in academia, I think academia obviously received him better. I mean, in the later chapter, chapter two, we'll get into that. But I mean, he goes in and he's like, basically like he's speaking all over the country at this point, all the time. And he's literally showing up to speaking events with like his briefcase and I mean, his suitcase in hand, because he's having to go from one place to the next. But one of the things Sibella highlights is that he he didn't go to any churches because they would, they didn't yeah. invite him because they That's didn't want right. to hear it. He was, he was going to, he was going to chapels at, at universities. He was striking like, too many hmm. chords when he went to the, you know, when he went off to academia. Um, you mean, you mean when he went off to churches? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. When he, when he oh, okay. moved and switched his jobs to academia, he had that more acerbic tone to him mm. that didn't sit as well in churches. So, yeah. So when he went off to academia and kind of developed his voice, a very, I don't know, it's kind of shock effect type of voice that he had, uh, then that wasn't as welcome in churches, I, I would say. Is, is, so is your question, is the, was the message, the way he explicates it here, is that more friendly for the church? now than it would be because yeah, it's more chapter... friendly for his parishioners yeah. it's more friendly for the powers that be it's kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt it's being very charitable I mean, to them even as he's critiquing them the way i don't, you, I don't know about charitable the, but the way you set it up is i think is correct in as much as sabella portrays it because near the end of chapter two if you both recall he, he gives a bit of a section talking about neighbors speaking gigs that happen after he gets on the full-time gig at union. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he's getting books all over the place, you know, but not many churches. And I think Sabella says, because no ministers wanted to deal with Niebuhr's critiques. Right. They didn't want anything to do with it. And the but that's what I'm it. saying. Like, I think that yeah. there is a notable switch from when he's a pastor yeah. to when he gets the academic job. Not when he's a pastor, I, I do think that he was very confrontational to Henry Ford, 
But there's a reason why he could kind of maintain um, his status and his large church and and the the great contributions that he got to, you know, they, they built like a whole new sanctuary in his church and all this type of yeah. stuff uh, from this money that was pouring in from Henry Ford's Detroit. There was a reason that he could keep that flowing, I'm saying, while so you all think the, it's also critiquing him. Yeah, think- I think. Yeah. yeah, he's always I think it was more charitable. And I'm wondering if that yeah. same tactic would have worked had he kind of kept that as he went into union. I think he felt like when he went to union, he was more liberated to say what he really meant. Although, ironically, union was built by Rockefeller. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I push back a little bit because like, I mean, Niebuhr's a hero. <laughs> um, no, uh, I. Yeah, I mean, maybe I've idealized him too much at this point um, to look at it clearly, but I mean, I don't think so. But I, I think, I, I wonder if he's just being strategic because to me, that's a very cutting indictment of Ford. I mean, the Ford, what do it you think? It is extremely the indictment cutting, but it is in the most gentle way, okay? Yeah. Well, but it's also just like, like remember- Okay, if, like you, if, I, if somebody told me I was being self-deceived, I would probably be pissed off. And I'd probably be like, what are you talking about? Uh, yeah, so I can see that. If I were Henry Ford and I got that kind of well, critique, that would kind of raise my hackles a little bit. But the way that he says that, though, is he let me read this part again. My own guess is, Niebuhr says, that Ford is at least as naive as he is shrewd, that he does not think profoundly on the social implications of his industrial policies, and that in some of his avowed humanitarian motives, he is actually self-deceived. So he's, grant, he's granting so, the fact that he is humanitarian-minded. And that he's one of the wanting to do that right. you go ahead. Well, one of the things that you are always clarifying to me, I'm going to bring your quote back around Uh-oh. on you right now. Okay. Just, Crap. Quote smack okay. is that Niebuhr clarifies reality. Yeah. He doesn't pres- give prescriptions. And I think what he's doing here is he's laying a smack down by clarifying the issues. He's literally, I think he genuinely thinks what, what he wrote there is what he genuinely thinks. He's, I don't think that he's softening the blow because he even writes later on that he regretted how polemical he was early on. And so I think that this is probably like peak neighbor in terms of like his interesting fire. Why I mean, would no churches we, accept him once he goes off to union? I mean, because obviously think, he's occupying this pulpit yeah. in a very prominent church in Detroit, but all of a well, sudden when he goes out there and the language, like I, I, I can see what you're saying. I think that he made a lot of enemies in Detroit and, uh, and I don't I'd have to listen to his reasons why he thought that he was maybe too polemical back then. But but all of a sudden, when we get into more man and more society, he's calling people stupid. He's calling he's he's calling calling people hypocrites. He's pointing out all these things like actual he's naming names. All right. And he's going after people in the most, um, you know, uh, oh, man, in the most acerbic of bitter tones. Uh but he's more diplomatic in, in, in Detroit. And maybe I'm just maybe I'm just cherry picking here. And it's just like one section that that Sabella is talking about here. But I, I'm I'm going to assume that Sabella is kind of picking from the most characteristic uh, remarks of the time. Well, and, and, you know, maybe maybe you're right on. But I guess the thing that it just seems just blatantly honest, he's just mm-hmm. saying and to me, like to call someone stupid or maybe there's a cultural difference or like a contextual difference. I don't I didn't live in the 1930s. Um, but to, to say what he said there is like deeply, deeply, like to me, when I, when I hear it, I'm like, man, that is deeply cutting. And that would cut to the heart at anybody at any time. 
like to say that you are self-deceived in your charity. He probably perceived himself with a very high view, be, you know, his big work week. And if he, if he was self-deceived, right. If neighbor's correct, he might've just been a narcissist who knows. Um, but I, I guess I just see that. And I'm like, man, that would be so cutting. If somebody just calls you a stupid or a hypocrite, it doesn't really actually indict you for what you're being stupid for. Yeah. It doesn't really actually indict you. It doesn't really explain oh, you're a hypocrite. It's like, okay, great. No, Niebuhr lays out, this is why. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna lay out he, your okay. I can see that. Vulnerability. It, it, he does offer some clarification to it. Whereas today, if we see a critique of, of a Ford type, an Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, whatever, people will just out and out say they're, they're greedy SOBs. And, yeah. you know, but Niebuhr is at least saying that he's so he's kind of offering forward a, a little bit of an out and saying that you're naive. You know, maybe you just don't know that this is affecting these people this way. Um, he's a, he says he's a, at least as naive as he is shrewd. So I don't think that Niebuhr's he, full on cynical up. here. And he does think that he's he's uh, operating from at least kind of uh his better angels a little bit for it is and still doing harm i think like stoop the the charge of stupidity is to say that someone is either doing this out of complete ignorance which would show the tension that niebuhr is providing here being shrewd whilst also being this other Naive. naive um but it also seems as just some sort of responsibility as well like you're being stupid yeah. <laughs> when you know what's going on so i i, I wonder if it's like willingly obstinate willingly yeah, not wanting to see what's in front of your own face exactly um i, I remember when we read together uh beyond tragedy and Niebuhr and I can't remember what chapters this is in so please you know uh take this lightly but Niebuhr kind of contrasts the vision of people who have wealth and power versus those yeah. who are impoverished and those who lack power That's good and he says that the vision broadly broadly quoting him but the vision of those who have it is is very narrow Mm-hmm. And only securing and reduplicating what they have in their possession. Mm-hmm. Whereas those who suffer, the vision is much more wider because suffering produces a wider grasp on reality. Um, so I wonder if that might be, uh, you know, how that's involved there. But maybe we can speak on, I, th- I think what Zach is getting, maybe getting at is Niebuhr is charging that for saying these things, but... I, I wonder if in the 1930s, Niebuhr's writing his articles against capitalism, he's writing Moral Man and Moral Society, very, his most radical books, right? And so I wonder if he's just beginning to develop these ideas more thoughtfully. And so then the language of stupidity comes to bear once he re- provides a realization of these things. So during the, the Ford period, he's still wrestling with this dialectic, this tension between naivety and and uh, shrewdish, shrewd, shrewdishness or shrewd, being shrewd. And so when he comes to immoral man and society, he's kind of maybe made up his mind a bit on what that means, that, that tension. Does that no, I love that. I think that that's right. I think that you can kind of trace all throughout his career the like different language Niebuhr will use to 
to kind of address that space. Um, it is naive and shrewd here. I th- it's going to be s- kind of stupidity and hypocrisy and more man and more society. And I know that Cornell West critiques Niebuhr for making this turn then later in his, in his life to switching from hypocrisy to irony. Iron, when, when Niebuhr starts calling things irony, this is the 1950s, um, maybe a little bit before, but he's, it kind of distances the person a little bit see, yeah. um, when you call it something ironic, right? And there's a difference, a, a, a subtle nuance between hypocrisy and irony is that there's kind of this uh, unknowable uh, quality to, to irony that you kind of self-fulfill your own fears, a little bit without knowing it. Um, whereas hypocrisy is, you know, full well what you're doing, you know, uh, that this, that this good thing you think this thing you think is good is actually doing this bad, this bad stuff as well. Well, there is a subtle point that Sabella makes in the conversation Reinhold has with his brother, Helmut, this, this sort of thing we've already talked about in the previous episode, this, this, um, debate that they have ongoing about Niebuhr's um, retention of some liberal theo- theological points, mm-hmm. uh, such as the optimism of individual human beings be a- being able to be good, to be mm-hmm. good human beings. Um, but Sabella makes the point that once Niebuhr starts engaging critically with more theological sources, the Pauline, Calvin, Augustine, these guys, mm-hmm. he kind of drops that sort of sense of human goodness a bit and yeah. i i have yet to see where sabella takes that that's interesting um, but i wonder if if the reason he, the shift from hypocrisy to irony is that subtle theological shift that maybe the, the debate between reinhold and helmut that maybe that's the, that's the whatever the thing that happens afterwards after yeah. that that makes sense to you guys i think that's an interesting point and without kind of text to point to right now to see how on the ground that does shift i think that i think your your intuition on this is interesting because i i do think that that lines up with history that would be an interesting study of seeing kind of how those how those what causes that and maybe the switch to augustine and and calvin and luther grounding him in a more firm understanding of of sin of what sin is would maybe mm-hmm. uh, uh, transform that hypocrisy and tyranny a little bit. Um, l- let me talk about one thing that we kind of missed is that Niebuhr's, uh, it, Sabella says that this may seem small, but in, the, but in the grand picture of Niebuhr's life, this was a significant shift in pragmatism for him when Niebuhr decided to go with the Catholic candidate in Detroit for mayor over and against the Ku Klux Klan backed um, candidate for mayor. Now to us, this might seem like a no brainer, but at the time um, the candidate, the Catholic that he would be endorsing was, was for uh, or was against prohibition. So, and he was for legalizing, I almost said weed, uh, legalizing (laughs) alcohol, uh, and yeah, I guess that there are some uh, similarities there, but uh, legalizing alcohol at the time. Um, and this was a huge taboo issue for social gospelers. Social gospel people were for prohibition. Uh, alcohol is killing the family 
it's uh it's crazy creating a, a, abuses um it's uh it's it's everything that's wrong with society kind of embodied in the bottle and uh but Niebuhr kind of bucks the system here and goes with his pragmatic senses of going with because of the Ku Klux Klan and and they just backed him but they but he said I can't vote for that guy yeah I mean it comes back down to at the beginning of the the first chapter this sort of tension Niebuhr sees in his his ethnicity well being German and American German Americans that were his uh, uh, neighbors, his friends, his family, all viewed in morality on this individual basis. It's the individual's problem to fix himself. Mm-hmm. Can't blame anybody else. So when you come to alcohol, for instance, you know, because just because Bob Joe down the street beats his wife after a few drinks doesn't mean that if I have a drink, doesn't mean I'm gonna be my <laughs> wife, you know? Right. Um, so there isn't really a, a view to have these social um consequences on a wider scale mm-hmm. um but you know i i, I mean i like to have a, a bite every time and then <laughs> of course <laughs> and i maybe maybe more than a time and then so i don't necessarily think i'm participating in these big social ills so this is probably one area where i probably would disagree with neighbor um quite vehemently but um to, to your point yeah it, it's it's quite interesting to see this pragmatic shift of him supporting this Catholic hand. And this Catholic was also part of the machine, Sabella yeah. says. So it's kind yeah, of remember, like voting for Hillary Clinton, you know? It's yeah. like, remember you're, who get, he was you're running getting against. the status quo here. What's that? It's so interesting that that was the norm. Just remember who he was voting against, this Ku Klux Klan-backed lawyer. Yeah. So that was the opposition. So, you know, and it kind of goes back to what Niebuhr says later on in, in chapter two, this... There are some things more horrible than war. There are some things more horrible than alcohol, probably. And that's probably racism. Yeah, that's right. Well, and yeah, and it's obviously something that was on his, his heart to some degree. You know, it's one of the things I kind of like about Niebuhr is he had a weird knack, like at least as I kind of like look at his track record, he had a kind of a weird knack of finding the right side of history, you might say. You know what I mean? If there is a right side of history. Like when we reflect on it, it's like, oh man, like he had an insight into this, like before everybody else did, you know what I mean? Like not everybody, obviously there were people, white people had an insight. Yeah. Yeah. What? Well, sorry. White people would be the, the group like, but he had an insight into it. And you know, you can really see that insight when he goes to union and then immediately or really soon after his church, all of a sudden segregates and doesn't allow blacks into the service. Yeah. And he's, he's pissed. utterly devastated. Yeah, he says, like like I a, don't think I'm ever going like to preach at that church again, my old church. Yeah. And, yeah. and and it's like a personal hurt. Like it's something that, like, that he was like personally hurt by. Um, and he knew about the prejudices that existed in, the, in his own church. But to see it come out so blatantly like that really shook him. Quickly. Yeah, I mean, just after he left. I yeah. Mean, as a pastor, that's one of those anxieties that you get. Like, you're always kind of wondering, you know, is the culture that I've instilled here only based on me? Or if I've actually oh, brought yeah. up a culture and values within people where they'll actually perpetuate this, what I've tried to instill in them. Um, and that had to be very, but again, that was very early on. I mean, there was not a lot of, I mean, maybe there were, but in my, to my knowledge, there weren't a lot of white evangelical pastors that were, you know, super outspoken about you know, anti being anti-racist in 1930. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, it was it was before some. And keep in mind also that he went to work for this candidate. So the candidate that he backed, the Catholic guy, um, actually gave him a position right off the bat to work with uh, black people and society and come up with programs that can help their living situation uh, that would be integrated into the candidate and into the mayor's policies. And so Niebuhr worked with these black organizations and these um, these inner city organizations. uh, people groups, but also when he when he goes to leave, I think that it, I think we should re- read this. So, so he works with the black communities in Detroit to try to help them um, out policy wise uh, to get economic support and, and help. On his way out the door, um, I love this. I love this quote. Um, so I'll just read from Sabella. Niebuhr left Detroit amid an outpouring of appreciation. Although various sectors of the city were sad to see him go, they also took pride in the fact that an adopted son was taking a post at such a prestigious institution. Particularly telling were prominent voices in the Black community that contacted Niebuhr upon hearing of his departure. John C. Dancy, the director of Detroit's Urban League, wrote, quote, Had this news come mentioning some, uh, some other minister, it would perhaps have occasioned no, earth, no earthly syllable for me. But in your case, in Niebuhr's case, that is something else again. He continued, I do not speak for myself only. I feel that I am expressing the feelings and sentiments of the great majority of Negroes in Detroit. When I say that there is genuine regret in the minds of the colored group of the city at your, le- at your leave-taking, there are many of us still mindful of your usefulness and trying to do those things which would mean for better understanding and better relationships between the races in the city of Detroit. To have you go without an expression of our appreciation of your services would be rank ingratitude. So Niebuhr was beloved by the Black community for his work that he had done there um, before leaving. And to go from this appreciation to leaving, and then that former post he has, that former pulpit that he occupied, turning into this bastion of segregation all of a sudden in the city. It must have been completely heartbreaking for, for Niebuhr. We've got to remember as well that this incredibly heartwarming, you know, uh, good, goodbye for Niebuhr to go up to, to Union. But as, as the introduction to the book notes that later on Niebuhr gets heavily critiqued by people like James Cone and yeah. other black members of the civil rights movement for his, for his philosophy um, this sort of caution that he advises when assessing di- this dialect between two different positions, not just jumping head over head over your heels over into something, it makes him prevents him from you know acting boldly mm-hmm. when when the time calls for things to be be done right. So that's and he's going to return to this later on in the book, and we are going to return to this. I would love to get uh, somebody from the black community on to discuss him more. Yeah, it'd be great. Uh, but that is something I had mentioned a couple of pod- a few podcasts ago about kind of Burkean style um, that Niebuhr kind of develops of institutional incrementalism is kind of what Niebuhr, ha- you know, tends to answer that question with later on in his career that. Um, and yeah, and that is certainly worth worth critique. But Sabella tries to kind of strike this balance between, you know, he was mindful of the situation and Niebuhr was so single-minded that he 
he only kind of attacked, you know, one part of the elephant at a time. And a big part that he neglected because of the single mindedness was the black community later on, his, later on in his career. But it's something that he did have an affinity for and he did uh, have deep appreciation for and and respect for the cause. Um, but uh, but it was something that he kind of got distracted by, you know, power politics and the Cold War later on uh, while these people are marching in Selma. Yeah. Well, and Sabella did highlight that he was also a very single minded person. Mm-hmm. So he got a cause or an issue on his mind. And that was like all he that's all he was like focused on for a while. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I'm kind of sympathetic to that. I feel like I sometimes get that way where I suddenly wake up and I'm like, man, I've missed a bunch of other issues that are far more pressing, but I was so fixated on this one that I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's even something inherent about this podcast where focusing on one white dude from the middle of, you know, the century is going to take us out of a lot of those issues that are pressing today, you know, and, and maybe, and it is something that we're going to have to address on here. But we are three white dudes that have a podcast and uh, about this um, this guy that kind of represented the establishment, you know, back in the back in the '60s. So uh, yeah, I mean, I can empathize uh, with that, but I also know that we have to be able to walk and chew gum, and we have to be able to address uh, these issues of systemic racism, things that are real going on, and that uh, up. Uh, you know, a lot of the systems that we benefit from are what are still holding these people down. And, th- and this is not to, to curtail the, this particular issue we have to face, not only for ourselves as members of this podcast, but also in, you know, talking about the relevance neighbor. But it just, if you look at his character for, for a moment, the way Sabella brings it out, with his brother, he's always referring to himself as the less, the less academic one this very humble position with Ursula, his wife, Sabella says that he saw them as equals. And so there is this sort of underlying theme in Niebuhr's life where people he is in solidarity with, or he is in communion with, not only people he is in church with, but people who share not the same goals, but people who suffer, people who are in different positions, he is very much with and for. So, you know, even though he's unable to, to have a bit foresight into these more systematic problems, um, you know, he can be appreciated as he is here, if we just read, for mm-hmm. his generosity and attention to the, the sufferings of other people. Let's talk about Ursula for a second. He has a great little section in here on kind of bringing out her personality a little bit. I love this section. Yeah, this was great. It's so much of it reminded me of my wife, by the way. But um, Ursula never took him seriously, it seemed. And like she never put him on the pedestal. Everybody else did. Um, and she was an academic in her own right, which has been discussed about before on here. Dorian last week said that Ursula's name should probably be on the cover of some of Niebuhr's later books because of how much work she went, uh, put into writing them, um, helping write them. Uh, but... I love that she put her foot down and said, no, you will not let your mother live with us. (laughs) Yeah, that's not happening here. Uh, And that I love this kind of the meat, the meat cute, as they would say in the Hollywood biz of uh, of Ursula showing up, never meeting Niebuhr nor Niebuhr's mom, sitting next to Niebuhr's mom without knowing it, listening to Niebuhr. 
And then all of a sudden she gets up as she's about to leave and says, grossly overrated talking about Niebuhr and uh, (laughs) leaves. Love that story. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. What are you guys thoughts? I I think, I think it's awesome. I think it's, it definitely shows his personality a little bit to choose somebody kind of as a life partner. Who's not, not too, not too persuaded by his uh, persuasion, but (laughs) gives him kind of a humble look of himself. Well, I wonder, just because I live in Britain and she's from the UK. Yeah. If uh, if there's differences in humor, Americans and British, Brit, British people have radically different tastes in humor. Whereas, and this is something I've been really reflecting on a lot, but Americans take things very personally, whereas British people are very sarcastic and will, will you know, will, will shoot you in the leg the first time they meet you just to have a bit of a laugh at it. Then they'll help you up afterwards. So I, w- I wonder if that's, you know, she's, they call it taking the piss. I wonder if she's taking the piss a bit, just having a bit of a laugh. <laughs> Never heard that expression. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> okay, so as we, uh, what, what's what's kind of the, let's move forward a little bit. What's the next uh, section that's on Moral Man and Moral Society? So uh, what did you guys pick up on this? I know I mentioned earlier on that he does a really good job of kind of giving this concise arg- argument for Moral Man and Moral Society, Sabella does. Uh, and it's his first book. Leaves from the Notebook of Tame Simic are from his journals from earlier in Detroit, but this is like his first big published work. And it's his first book at, at Union as well. Uh, what are some, some big things that you would like to, to draw out uh, from this that, that Sabella is talking about? Well, I think the big, one of the biggest aims is the position or the relation of reason um, to mm-hmm. our political projects and anything project right um he says that the engine driving the forward march of progress now press progress with a capital p the history the progress of history is the power of reason so mm-hmm. one of big neighbors bigger critique is that reason can be used in to coerce it can be used to justify a number of uh of of really evil and poorly made decisions. I think he makes the comparison to Joseph Goebbels here as well. Yeah, I I have a former student of mine as a lawyer and she just threw out a, a tweet the other day expressing this point that um, it's so frustrating for her that the main thing keeping people who are getting uh, beat down by the system and economics, main thing kind of keeping them there is kind of the rationale um uh that that a lot of people in power have and as as a criminal defense lawyer i mean she's she's looking at these high power attorneys who are able to just by their the way that they speak and their their ability to kind of uh manage reason in the courtroom over and above uh some of the kind of noobs who are just entering into criminal defense uh it's it's staggering people are able to literally use reason in the courts as a way of keeping people down. Um, and this is kind of an echo, I think. I've, I've always said that this, is, this, this looks like Hume to me, and it does, and it's a central feature of, of uh, more Man and More Society, is that um, where Hume says that reason is, oh gosh, how does he say it? It's slave to, the passions. Slave to passions. Yeah, yeah, reason is slave to the passions. And Niebuhr adds this extra dimension of self-interest in there, that, uh, that reason is kind of a handmaiden to uh to uh to self-interest there's a great quote of more more man and more society where he says something like 
uh, kings used to use courtiers and chaplains as extensions of their power to kind of give cover for their power. But today, uh, our kings use reason for those purposes um, to kind of get their way. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I think that's, that's something that to a, a culture that prides itself um, in reason, even in, in theology and, you know, uh, in the humanities, um, mm. this is kind of doing just kind of a masking job of a lot of the evils of society. But the base of this as well is the way we identify what human beings are. And as Sabella points out, that thinking goes that human beings were rational animals. Yeah. Um, and the more they cultivate the tools to define, you know, to, to medical progressions and technology and sciences and politics and mm-hmm. art, stuff like that, that's cultivating reason. The more we become rational, the more we become more peaceful. That's the sort of thinking that happens. And it kind of co-opts what we call traditionally the, the, the secularity thesis, that the more society becomes more secular and more mm-hmm. rational, the more peaceful we become. But as Niebuhr shows, it's not always the case. And this is kind of foreshadowing his debate with Dewey that's going to come later, uh, because Dewey's all about education. Uh, you educate people, then that, that, that's kind of our uh, pillar of fire that's going to lead us out of the wilderness. Yeah, and it seems a really strange thing that we have to be reminded of this. But one of the things I really like about Sabella's summary of this is just the the centrality of struggle through the human condition in terms of politics. Like, there's no abandoning the necessity of coercion. There's no abandoning. Mm. You can abandon politics altogether, but there's still going to be politics. It's an unavoidable sphere of human existence. Effective politics will always include the struggle. When the struggle itself has been eliminated, that's actually, that doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, people are always like, I want the United States to be more united. And one of the things that I almost gather from what Sabella is saying here is that that's not actually the goal. You know what I mean? That's not the goal of, of those politics. It's to give some sort of, um, give a nonviolent way to resolve those conflicts, to, to hash it out in the public square, as opposed to those who are just kind of like, lusting after a simpler unified approach to politics it's like no no no. at the heart of politics to accept that right to say we're always going to struggle with this we're it's always going to be a center point to our existence it's like it's simple right everybody kind of knows that but it's almost like some people like try to hide from it or not even just some people a lot of people try to like almost hide from it and pretend that it that it's not a necessity and i think that's really really you enter into politics To, to establish justice, you have to bring power into the equation at some point. And the, what, what I was referencing with Gandhi, I got to read this. He says, Niebuhr argued that Gandhi succeeded not because of the morally compelling character of nonviolence, which is what we always hear from the Harawas types and, and stuff like that, that just are nonviolence and uh, us looking all peaceful and stuff is somehow going to have this... Uh, this ripple effect and people are going to see it's very puritanical people are going to see our goodness and it's going to shape society but he says that's not why gandhi was successful it wasn't because it was morally compelling this character of nonviolence, but because he managed to translate nonviolence into a into a form of political leverage so he still gandhi was not uh did not have a great effect because of his example to the masses but because he managed to use his nonviolence, 
his civil disobedience as a way of getting his way as a he was able to translate that into political leverage but there's always coercion you can't escape it if you want your way there's got to be um there's got to be some measure of leaning on the powers good and i think the solution that neva brings out um and this a bit like kind of highlights is that any quotes is that social ethics require discerning how best to approximate the law of love in an arena that understands only power. Mm-hmm. So bringing that Christian element, the gospel into that, this arena of power and leveling it out on a dialectical basis. That, that's, that's the difference between what well, might be Gandhi or Howard Wass or these Bartian types, mm-hmm. where the only thing that should be is this sort of ephemeral realm um, where we recede into, whereas Niebuhr's the nitty gritty, we'll get into it. We'll bring it all, bring it everything is full circle right. here. Yeah. What the main contribution, I think one of the main contributions of more man, more society is, is he changes the conversation from how do I avoid coercion into, okay, there is coercion. How do I use coercion rightly is the question. Is there a righteous way to do this? I think that's a better answer. Ultimately, I think it's a better way to look at things than to say coercion is never necessary. You know what I mean? It's almost like a, I don't know. It's, it's, it's something, it's something I don't like, you know what I mean? It's like hard to put it. It's like an intuitive disdain I have for that. Now that idea that we need to just, just, let's just do nothing or let's just avoid the conflict or coercion. And it's like coercion is a necessity every single day, you know? And I love the very simple example he gives of the, the six-year-old, you know, that you're, you're telling they can't do something. That's a form of coercion. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. that's good. Any, any last thoughts on this chapter? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my thought is just, you know, to the listener, uh, I highly recommend this book, especially if you're coming out of a, a background of faith where politics, and especially this chapter, right? This chapter about the necessity of activism or uh, social engagement, you might say, right? There's, the, there's a book floating around, or it's a little older now. But, you know, in the last 10 years, I don't remember exactly when it came out, but the uh, the Benedictine option, mm. you know, it, it's this idea. It's almost the opposite of this, you know, the idea that we need to isolate from society and remove ourselves from social engagement. Um, and he probably wouldn't say it that harshly, but that's kind of the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as to keep ourselves unstained from the world. But I think that Niebuhr demonstrates, and you see it right here from the beginning, and we're going to see it all the way throughout the book, that to that there's a necessity within the, within the gospel to be those who are socially engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know exactly what that looks like for myself yet. You know, I'm still kind of working on this, you know, it's only been a few years since I started engaging with this idea, but um, it haunts me, mm-hmm. you know, this chapter haunts me all the time. So Good. any last thoughts, Aaron? Um, I think maybe just to reemphasize that though, Niebuhr is such an important figure. He does have his shortcomings because he's a human being. That's right. And I think that's the way he would want to see it. But despite that, he had a depth of thought and generosity that has shaped not only contemporary theology, but those around him in very intimate and social ways. Yeah. Well, thank you guys both very much. Um, Thank you. I'm excited to hear this when it comes out. I'm a fan. 
I'm not just a host. I'm a fan. Uh, anyway, that, <laughs> that does it for today. I can't believe I get to talk to these guys on this podcast. Uh, that does it for today. Um, if you're enjoying us, um, like and subscribe. Uh, write us a, a really good review if you can. Give us five stars, whatever. And follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and updates. Join our community. Talk to us. Okay. And we'll respond at us and we'll respond. You talk to us. Um, yeah. But anyway, thank you all so much for listening. We really, really, really appreciate all the support. Um, you're the reason that we're doing this. So take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.